We began this series six weeks ago talking about the importance of leveling up in life. Like, you know, you hit those moments where you're like, oh, look, I've grown. Look what's happened here. And you didn't realize it. You just kind of look back and, and see, the, see the growth in your life. Um, we, we do this with Charlotte at home, my four-year-old. She's really at a stage where she's growing a lot. And so we have a, a door frame um, that uh, we mark her height and put the date beside. And she gets really excited about it. It's really encouraging to, to see that, that growth in your life. And and we really felt like that this series was hopefully going to point us to that. So in the spirit of all things leveling up and growing, um, I decided I was going to share with you probably a, a, I mentioned last week that I went to Chicago on anniversary trip with my wife, uh, 14 years with Suzanne, and that was really exciting. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, what, I, what I didn't mention was how it started. Um, so, uh, yeah, so... We've been married 14 years, and for the last few years, Suzanne's not big into small gifts, all right? Like it's, and I don't, I don't mean like she's going to be like, if you brought her like a flower, she's like, get out of my face. She's not going to do that. But like, you know, I kind of have to show up sometimes. And I, not a shameful thing, because like she doesn't ask for a lot. It's just when I ask her like, hey, what do you want? She doesn't, she'll let me know like, hey, this is something I would like, but you're a pastor and it'll never happen. Well, uh, so pastors save money and things good can happen to us sometimes. So all that to say, uh, put some pennies together and, and was able to get her um, a ring. Uh, it was, a, it, it was a, a band that was like her original wedding band, but in this one had expensive stuff on it uh, and not just the thing that I gave her uh, 14 years ago. Um, so, you know, saved up, got it for, was really excited. She knew that she was getting it. My whole plan was to go to Chicago take one of the architectural boat tours, find the most beautiful structure, get on a knee, and then propose to her all over again. Oh, isn't that sweet? Well, that's not what happened, all right? So <laughs> I, uh, I thought the securest place to keep that ring would be my front pocket as we uh, went to Chicago. Don't judge me, all right? So like, I put it in my front pocket, and we got on the plane. So it was in my front pocket when I left the house, right? We got on the plane, sat down, felt my pocket. It was not in my pocket. We were 30,000 feet in the air, halfway to Chicago, and I could not find a ring that I saved a long time for, a long time for, to give her. So, um, so here's the moment, right? I can tell you this. 14 years ago, if that would have happened to us, the plane would have disintegrated in midair from the sheer amount of toxic shame and rage from me and her and her, and it would have made the news. It would have been bad, okay? Um, and so in that moment, I looked at her, and I said, uh, I, I can't find the ring. And she looked at me, and, and, and she's are you sure? And I was, like, she, I was like, it was in my pocket. And she goes, why'd you put it in your pocket? You know, and um, and I was like, I oh, know, and and so the worst two things that happened in that moment was, I hit my head on the seat in front of me, and she said, "Why'd you put it in your pocket?" Right? That's the worst that happened. From there, we were like, well, I guess we'll just figure it out. Like I, 
guess we'll just make it work and it'll be fine. It's not okay, but we'll figure it out. And I had this really weird piece inside that was like, hey, it's okay to not freak out right now. And it's okay to not be a, a jackal. It's okay to not rage. It's okay to not make a scene. It's okay to not go to the, the flight stewardess and be like, turn the plane around right now, you know, that kind of thing. It's okay just to like go with this and to, to do the right thing in this hard moment. And that is to be kind and loving, to not be shameful or shaming to myself or, or whatever else. Now, here's how the story ends. We, we land the plane. Um, we didn't land the plane. The plane lands. We run off the plane. <laughs> I took over the plane. <laughs> uh, so all that to say, um, the plane lands. We get off. I call TSA about five times because we all know TSA is going to come through for us. Um, and five hours later, five calls later, TSA found the ring. Yes, TSA, this is the only time you'll ever be okay with TSA the rest of your life, right? And they found it in a bin. I took it out of my pocket. People, I took it out of my pocket, and I put it in the bin, and I left it in Memphis Airport. They found it, they held on to it, and I gave Suzanne the ring when we got back. So there you go, right? There you go. Matter of fact, I, I went inside the airport, walked out, went to the passenger side window, I said, here. Happy anniversary. Love you. <laughs> and then I got in the car. <laughs> Here's my point. It was, a hard situ it was a hard moment. It's really hard making the right decision in hard moments, isn't it? Like, it's really hard doing the thing you know that you need to do and are supposed to do, even when everything else around you tells you, just skip out on that one. And I, I think this is kind of what we're finding in this passage that the, the apostles are leveling up. The followers of Jesus are leveling up. The stakes are getting higher. The roller coaster is getting windier, right? And they're having to make harder decisions, better decisions, more ethical decisions, obedient decisions in the midst of hard circumstances. So I just want us to walk through that and look at it and, and see what we discover for ourselves. So let's, let's just jump right in. It says in verse 12, right, that the apostles performed many signs and, and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. And, and I have a picture for us here. I, I want us to try to get an idea of Solomon's colonnade. This would be a, you know, so the, the, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So we don't know exactly what it all looks like except some guesses, sketches, things like that. But you see, that was where, in the distance, that's where the sacrifices would be made. Um, and then Solomon's colonnade would be where Solomon hung out in his colonnade, uh, where the king would look on. And this became kind of a, a meeting ground. Uh, you may have even heard it called Solomon's Portico. And this was this place where early believers would gather regularly and talk and, and spend time. This is also where, like, all the stuff went down the signs and wonders. Crowds would gather around. You ever been out in public and you see a magician doing his thing and people eventually, if they're good enough, they, they gather around? It would have been this, except they're not magicians, but there's signs and wonders. There's signs and wonders going on. This would be where a lot of, um, you know, because if you were lame, uh, if you had disease, you only could go so far in because you were lame and had a disease and that meant that you were judged somehow by God. You were impure. And so this is where all the people who didn't belong would, would hang out. 
And so we find that they're spending time regularly at Solomon's, Solomon's colonnade. And there's, it says in, in verse 13, 14, that no one really dared join them. There were people like going, this is some crazy stuff here happening. And yet others were compelled. Like a lot of people were compelled, which is really how it works. Like if you're, if everybody wants to do what you're doing, you're doing it wrong. If no one wants to do what you're doing, you're doing it wrong. If there are people who don't want to and want to do what you're doing, like you may be onto something. Like it's not just like a group think and like, oh, let's all go behind it, the masses. It's, it's, it's like a both end here. And so we see that, that things are happening. And then we'll read here in verse 15. It says, as a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Pause. That's wild. Like his shadow they're lining him up just so his shadow to, to hit them, to, to touch them. This is wild stuff we're talking about here. And then we go on and read, crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits. And all of them were healed. So something profound and amazing is, is going down here. But here's what's really interesting. Read, read next. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. So why are they jealous? Like, what's going on here? Well, to understand that, we need to try to understand the Sadducees and who they were just, just for a bit. You had, you had two major groups of religious leaders at this time in, in modern-day Palestine, Israel. You had the Sadducees and, and the Pharisees. And Sadducees were, they were like, almost like the purebloods. They, they were the elite. They, they were the ones that really had the money. They were the governing elders at 30,000 feet over Israel. And they were the ones that made the big decisions. They were also the ones who were in bed, in a sense, right, with Rome. And they were also a part of the Rome propaganda machine, okay? And, and, and the Sadducees and Pharisees, like Pharisees were like pastors, like on, on, a, on a local kind of circuit, small scale. And it was really interesting because Pharisees and Sadducees, like Sadducees only believed what was written in the first five books of, of, of the Torah, like the Torah. Like anything else in the prophets, they didn't receive. And it had to be literal, black and white, what was said. It, they were almost like just a lot more conservative. Uh, and, and the Pharisees, they actually would say things like, it doesn't matter what was written. What's really more important is what's been interpreted since. So they were about the oral law. And there was this really like conservative progressive thing, shocking, right? Pro, conservative progressive thing going on there. And so the Sadducees, though, were ruling over, over Israel, They'd be the ones that would travel internationally and handle the diplomatic issues, which means there was money tied to their success or failures, and they wanted to stay in good with Rome because they were trying to balance something. They, you know, they were being almost too sneaky politically, right? Trying to handle just too much, and what they're being threatened by is these apostles, and it's not just because people were 
getting saved of how we always understand it, or understand it a lot of times, and then like repenting and moving on. When you would talk about salvation in the first century, it was connected to politics because Jesus was Messiah. That's a political term. It's tied to that. Um, and so, therefore, by them proclaiming a new Lord, and here's this new Lord who has all this power, they are getting antsy because that means dollars and people and influence and control will be lost. So you can see now maybe why they're getting jealous and, and why something like this is scaring them. Because it's not just like, well, just let the apostles do their thing. No, now the masses are coming with them. And so let's, let's just try to unpack this and, and keep looking at it. Because it's important. When the disciples would heal people, they were telling people, there is a Lord and emperor who loves you and will be good to you unlike the Lord and Emperor maybe of Rome, like it was kind of the, the opposite, the vis-a-vis of that. And so they're getting afraid, and they're now going to arrest them. They put them in, in public jail, which would be like where all the reprobates are, right? Like this is, they're really trying to, to prove a point. And then in a matter of just a few hours, a, an angel shows up and breaks them out of jail, right? Like we have whole TV shows built around prison breaks, and in movies about how to get out and plans, an angel shows up and is like, here you go, now go back out and proclaim. And it's kind of a, a tense moment you have to imagine. It's not that the apostles are going, oh yeah, sure, we'll go back out and proclaim. They're going, wait a second, we just got arrested. And you're telling us to go back out and do the same thing again? And yet they do. Now let's read here in verse 20. It says, the angel said to them, go stand in the temple courts, and tell the people all about this new life. And here's what I really like with the ESV. We're going to put that up there. It says, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And they capitalize the word there, even in this translation, because it is in the Greek. Like, this life, the word zoe, it's the life that is really life. Like the thing that this king was offering was the thing you never could get with this old king, and that is the life that is really life, that all people now can come and find a place to belong and have their lives changed. So this is what you need to go and proclaim. And so it says, at daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. Now, the, the guards, the officials find out about this because they're like, they're not in jail, and they go out and they find them back in the courts. And once again, the Rome propaganda machine is going to have some holes poked in it because now it shows their incompetency that on this like small scale level, they can't even keep these people who had loud mouths talking about some Messiah quiet. And so they, they take it to the officials, and we see in verse 27 that the apostles were brought in, made to appear before the Sanhedrin in question by the high priest. And he says, we gave you strict orders to not teach in this name, yet you fill Jerusalem with your teaching. And this is what's interesting. You're determined, it says, you're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Now, this is a, this is a big moment because the apostles are not obeying the elders. Those who supposedly are put in charge even by God 
to make decisions for all of Israel, and they're pushing against the powers that be. And this is going, you know, we saw in chapter three a few weeks ago how that there was an arrest that happened. Um, I'm sorry, chapter four, there was an arrest that happened, but it was like a, a, a pat, a slap on the hand kind of thing. This has the feelings of something a little bit bigger because we'll actually see for the next two chapters, things start escalating to where eventually there's like widespread violence on Christians and they're being pushed out. So something's happening. There's, there's a really big crack here because what they're saying is that this person, Jesus, this Messiah was killed, murdered by the people that are supposed to protect you. And this Jesus was the Messiah, which would mean to an everyday person, wait a second, we've been wanting to get out from under the thumb of Rome for all these years, and you killed our best chance? So now they're really questioning the Sanhedrin. And now the Sanhedrin really has to shut down all this talk. And so they're getting upset, and they're pushing against it. And they're saying, you have to obey us. You have to do what we're saying. And then it says here in verse 29, it's a famous verse. You've heard it before if you grew up in church, where Peter says, all of them say, we must obey God rather than human beings. We must obey God rather than you. And then there's all this like political jargon tied into what they say next. Read on, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed. You killed this person. You killed the person who was life. You're the one. Like, just think about going to your, the most authoritative person in your life and telling them off like this. Like the person who's called the shots in your life. And you're like, no, 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 it was you. No, this was your fault. Because we're compelled. We know the truth here. And then they go on to say, God exalted him by his own right hand and by prince and savior, which is really interesting because um, these are words that would be attributed to uh, the emperor. So this word prince is, um, the word is archaeo, archaeo. It would be like leader, the real leader. They were saying like, he's the real leader and he's the real savior. So they're throwing all this back into the Sadducees' faces. And then they go on to say, we are witnesses of these things. The word for witness in Greek is the word martyr, which when you think of a martyr, you think of someone who gives their life for something. Now, when someone is so decided to do something, they're willing to lose their life. Is there really anything like, like scarier? Like there's no convincing that person. They're going to do what they're convinced of. Which, by the way, the Bible says that, like, therefore, we're to be witnesses in that way. Witnesses doesn't mean to convince someone that they're this horrible person, they're going to go to hell and scare them into salvation. To witness, to martyr, means that you are so convinced by this that regardless of their decision, you're willing to die. You're willing to die for this message because it's so important to you. This is a big moment because they're pushing against these powers and they're saying to them, we're, we're not like going to keep playing these games. The, the line is drawn in the sand and they are poking the holes of the powers that be the systems at play in their day. They're poking holes in those systems and the Sadducees like are reeling 
from this. Now, let me ask you, have you ever come to a point of having to call out and maybe even sever ties from those who used to have power over you? Have you ever had to do that? Maybe, maybe it was a controlling partner that you were dating and you found that like this is just really unhealthy. Maybe it was like an, an abusive boss who used loads of shame to get you to do X, Y, and Z things. Um, maybe it was a manipulative family member, right? Like just throw a rock and you'll hit it pretty soon, right? Like, it's a big deal for you to, like, break out of these systems, for me to break out of systems. It's scary, isn't it? When you realize, like, I can't keep obeying you because this is, like, abusive, and, and you actually don't, you may have, you may think you have the best intentions for me, but this, this isn't, this isn't working. And this is the moment they're having, they're like, no, 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 we're not doing this one anymore. That's scary. It's scary to push against those. And the word that's really big and scary in here, right, is this word like obey. We must obey God rather than men. So let's talk about this kind of big, scary word, obey. Um, obeying God, obey God, obey God. Like, who's having some, like, PTSD shooting off right now, right? Like, obey God. Do this when you leave. Obey God. Now, here's the thing. We can't get away from that's in the Bible. Obedience is a part of this path that we walk on. So we, we have to be able to talk about it. For them, that wasn't trauma at all. It was actually somehow life-giving, which we'll get to. But when we talk about being obedient to God, there's all kind of things that could that could shoot off for us. Now, for some of us, when we think of obedience to God, we think of a more um, personal, private thing. That what's important for me is to be obedient to him personally and how I live my life, to make good moral decisions on a daily basis. And I think we all can agree, yes, that's important. And there's others of us in here that are more convinced of the public social aspect of obedience, like the ethics of Jesus. And it's really interesting. It, it, when you, if I were to ask you to picture a person who, is, um, who has obedience personally, I found a lot of times it's hard to think of like, but did they really always have obedience socially? And I don't mean like, were they a good person? I mean like, did they go care for, like, the marginalized? Did they go try to break down the systems of their day? Like, we kind of have this cultural Christian war thing going on where you either have to have personal piety or, or public holiness. And we're creating a dichotomy that doesn't need to exist. And I think we do it. I know I do it because of really what's comfortable. Because at the end of the day, I'll obey basically what I'm comfortable with. That's what I'll do. I'll obey what I'm comfortable with. And what I'm not comfortable with, I'll spin and I'll kind of try to stretch it out and maybe or maybe not really get around to it. And I'll always have a really good reason or excuse. 
But hear, hear what Eugene Peterson had to say about it. But sooner or later, we find that not everything is to our liking in this book. It starts out sweet to our taste, and then we find it doesn't sit well with us at all. It becomes bitter in our stomachs. Finding ourselves in this book is most pleasant, flattering even, and then we find that the book is not written to flatter us, but to involve us in a reality, God's reality, that doesn't cater to our fantasies of ourselves. Gosh, I wish he wouldn't have wrote that. Like, I love it when I see the Bible, like, connecting with me, and it's shooting off, and it's all exciting, and like, oh, there's life, and I like that, and like that. And then you get to the point where, like, you, you get to the stuff you don't want to really do, and you're like, I, I don't know if I can really call myself a follower of Jesus if I don't do this. And just so you know, you really can't follow, call yourself a follower of Jesus unless you do it. Because to follow Jesus, which we'll see from Lewis in a bit, is to follow him into all things, both for personally and socially. Well, yeah, but I don't really, you know, I don't really get into that whole social justice thing. It's a little bit too much. Well, then you can't really get into Jesus. Call it, I don't care if you call it, call it whatever you want. Don't call it social justice if you don't like that. Just call it what Jesus was doing, and that is stepping into the, like, hard places. But then we'll see that, like, yeah, but I'm doing all these really hard things and caring for all these hard people, but then, like, your personal life is junk. Like, you find that you really, you really, like, well, because I'm doing all these hard things, I don't have to do these personal things where no one's looking. And we create this dichotomy of like a 1 p.m. and a 1 a.m. us. 1 p.m. us gets it all together. 1 a.m. us hides out. But we can't have it both ways. And I think a lot of it, you know, growing up, there's just this part where we just submit and do it. Like you just do it. You just do kind of what you're told to do because you're kind of supposed to do it. And, and when we read these, these apostles, these early followers of Jesus, like, they're stepping into hard moments, and they're doing the things they saw their, their, their leader, their rabbi do, their Messiah do, and they're taking it further. So they're, they're doing it. But listen, y'all, submission only can work for so long. They seem to have something else other than just going, I'm supposed to do this, and I better do it. So let me, let me go about it this way. It's going to sound weird. How many of you were spanked growing up? Oh, wow. There we go. Okay. How many of you were not? That's okay. That's great. One. Wow. So here's the thing. Like, whether you were or weren't, okay, um, and, 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 oh, and there can be a lot of trauma that comes with that, right? Let's just be honest, okay? And, and just so you know, if you're still um, in your parents' care right now, um, uh, it's not like they spank you because they want you to change, all right? Like, you need to do different, all right? So, but it's not just that. It's not just that. Like, it's not like a parent goes, well, I'm going to bring discipline in your life because I'm tired of you and you need to do different. No, like, whatever the discipline may be, whether spanking, not spanking, like, I'll tell you for Charlotte, we don't spank because it don't work, all right? Like, 
the, the child is an Enneagram 8 and 1, like made into like Voltron or something, and like she's indestructible. And, and, and but here's the thing, kids are, ins- they're insane. Like you try to reason with a child and like everything's like chocolate and unicorns and right now, and you're like, you'll die. I don't care. This is what I want, you know? And so like it, they say, studies show that for a it, it really isn't until age 25 to 30 in that range that men and women come to a full place of reasoning, which means you've never made a fully reasonable decision in your life until you hit about 25 to 30 years old. And then you wonder why the world throws you out there to be successful right out of college and it doesn't work, right? It's crazy, right? So all that to say, the discipline is trying to create a container for the child to realize their insanity, and so they can now make better decisions along the way. And what they need is some some direction and force. What they basically need to understand is submit, or this will not work. It just is that, all right? And I don't, whether you're going to use spanking or not, I don't care. Like, it's just like, you got to do this, all right? Like, this has got to happen, because I'm the adult and you're not. But here's the thing. If we only stay in those places like submit and you better do this, at some point in time, there's really something that's called rebellion. Now, it's inevitable. A lot of people, it happens to them. But it especially has to happen for those who grew up in these tight-fisted homes where everything has to be an exact certain way. Because if the discipline and shaping only stays at submit to me and never turns into join with me, then that person will never get to a place where they get to surrender. Because there's a difference between submission and surrendering. Submission is what's used when a new power comes into town and says, you can die or you can live. It's really up to you. So let's submit. But surrender happens when you realize that nothing else really works and you're like, I give in. Let's try it this way. So here's the question. What like allows a person to switch from submission to surrender to really want to obey because they're joining in on something? I think it comes down to like the guardian. It comes down to the person overseeing it. Do they believe that the guardian they have, the protector they have, truly is a benevolent and loving and generous person? That they're not doing this in reaction to the circumstance, but they're actually doing it because Like, I just really, really love you, and I want you to have, like, a great life. And so I'm going to keep working with you in this. I'm not just going to tell you flat things that have to work out, and you go do them. I'm actually going to be in relationship with you. That's why real, like, real parenting is hard. Like, you you can stick a child in front of a TV or let them wander off, do whatever else, but to really engage with the child's life and to work with them on the ethics and morality takes a lot of work. So don't have a kid unless you're willing to do it, right? Because it's really, really hard. (laughs) But like, it's important to see, I think what's happening here is that the apostles are not just being commanded into things, but they're compelled into things. This word obedience that's used here, we must obey God, is used about five times. Four of the times in the New Testament is used in Acts. Really interesting. And let's just look at the word. It's two words put together. It's the word patho, 
along with the word archeo. Now, um, the word patho is to be persuaded, to be wooed, to be compelled. And the word archeo is that word prince, leader, that we read earlier. Really interesting what they're doing here in the Greek. So what they're saying is this, we are persuaded by our ruler. We're persuaded by our ruler. We're not condemned and just simply commanded by our ruler. We have a ruler that's, that's with us. We have a ruler that's invested in this with us. And so therefore, it makes much more sense for us to do it and not just do what you're saying to do. So here's my question for us. Do you have that kind of ruler? If your God that you talk to, pray to, is simply about, I better obey you or you'll get me, it will not last. And it may have already stopped for you and you're just kind of going through the motions. You're going to need something a lot more gracious and benevolent. I want you to think about that quote by Richard Orr I put up last week. We'll put it up again here. It's really interesting. He says, if God is Trinity and Jesus is the face of God, okay, so Jesus is the reality of God, then it is a benevolent universe. Meaning, if Jesus really is God, then he's a benevolent person. He's a benevolent, you read the gospels and you're compelled. His generosity is benevolence, which means then if he's really in control, it's a benevolent world that you get to live in. Meaning, you don't have to live close-fisted which then goes on, that means you don't have to be afraid of this God, but instead, it's this God's the ground of being, meaning when you're always stepping into hard moments, somehow, some way, you can still have peace in those hard moments. When you know that you have to obey in hard times, there's something about it that you can do it because you have a benevolent God, you live in a benevolent world, where it doesn't mean everything's coming up roses, but it means that somehow, some way, at the very end, God is on your side. So when you obey, are you obeying because he's on your side or are you obeying to get him on your side? We need something more to push us into obedience than just simply submission. It starts there. All of us, when we come into our faith, have no clue what we're doing. So just do it. Like, this, this is important. Do this. There's a wiser person leading you. But listen, friends, you won't stick with this. This is like a second half of life in your faith thing. That you have to ask the questions, is my God benevolent enough and big enough and gracious enough for me to be persuaded by this archaeo, this leader, this prince? Because here's what's being asked of you, maybe, I know it is of me. We are asked to obey in hard times. Like, are your sins, have they really just become addictions? And what you really need to do is like, go get into 12-step recovery and get you a lot of therapy. That's a hard decision to make. It takes a lot of obedience. If it ain't gone away in 10 years or so, it's not going away unless you really deal with it. Or maybe, is your marriage really, like, not good? Like, do you just really need to work on it? 
And you keep convincing yourself that you'll grow into it, but it's just not working because you keep living isolated. You don't really ask for help. And you need to step out and get some help. It's hard to be obedient. Are there certain people getting treated unfairly at your work whose voices were taken away? Men, are there women at your work who are being assaulted verbally, physically, being mistreated? And do you have a say-so in that? Which the answer is yes, you do. It's hard to obey in difficult times. Are there careers and jobs that we have right now that simply keep perpetuating the system? That keep giving to those who have and take away from those who don't have? And I don't mean to like go find you a nonprofit and whatever else, but I mean like, are you a part of the problem or are you part of the solution for things to get better for us in this city? Do you have intentionality with your work and your job? Or even in our politics, to not try to decide on a color, but to go, things like abortion matters, but things like immigrants being welcomed to our country matters, right? Things like those who are abused, equal rights for women, those things matter. Listen, it's hard to obey in hard times. So what's going to give you the courage to do it? It sure ain't going to be because you're supposed to or because your mommy and daddy told you to. It's going to have to be because you have a more benevolent and kind and gracious God who you know is on your side. It's hard to obey. But somehow, some way, these followers could stand against the powers that be and say, we're just going to do this because we know that like, we got to and we're compelled to. Let's pray. So, Father, now as we come to the table and we consider Christ, we're reminded that um, you are truly kind and benevolent to us. And that means that we actually want to obey you. We want to follow you. We're compelled by you. And if there's any of us in this room that just kind of question that, I pray that as we come to this table, this is what this table is about. It's about generosity. That we would be willing to go, wait a second, I need more than just simple submission. I need real surrender to a God who truly loves me. So I pray the gospel would be clearly seen for people here this morning. And we'd find ourselves leaving even more in line with you. In the name we pray. Amen.